0: So I, um, yeah, I mentioned the title of this talk to, to a friend of mine and she, she told me about this, this Onion article, uh, Actual Expert Too Boring for TV, um, about a nuclear physicist who gets rejected by the local TV station because he's just too boring. And um, they go with this guy, Skip Hammond. What I love is that the producer actually does sound like he's really genuinely trying to get this guy on. He says, uh, well, he just didn't address the fears that the average citizen might have about nuclear power, like meltdowns, radiation, or mushroom clouds. So he says he has a duty to entertain his audience and to inform them. Um, This is not, of course, our problem. Uh, The idea that somebody would be too boring for a podcast is first of all, just not funny, but also would would deny all the incredible work that the people here at this conference, the people in previous conferences, all of these sessions that are on archive, as this, I guess, one will be, uh, which tell you how to make people better talkers. And it's a wonderful thing. I mean, good talkers need not be um, uh, born. They can be made through Interview techniques, least Spiegel spends a minimum of eight hours with, with an interviewee. There's, of course, editing techniques, there's production, all of which people share at these kind of conferences, and it's great. I love being part of a medium that makes people's stories more listenable, more, um, more uh, relatable, and more engaging. Uh, but sometimes those techniques fail. And for the purposes of this talk, we're gonna look at when they fail uh, overseas with non-Americans. Um, and what I wanna do to de- with you is ask the question, is it that they failed because we did the techniques badly, which is possible? Is it that the person is genuinely boring, which is also possible? Or is it that there was something else going on? Was a cultural, maybe something lost in translation, some mistranslation of what they're trying to tell you or what you're asking them? Um, uh, Andy Mills, who was with Radiolab and is uh, now with The Daily, a wonderful, wonderful producer, was talking to me a story about when he was in Darfur, uh, Sudan, and he was doing interviews about, uh, about the atrocities that happened there, and uh, he, would, he would go to a family and he would say, what happened, and they would say something like, uh, actually, this is a direct quote, the bad men came and our women were sexed which is a terrible quote on like a 100 different levels. It's both vague and creepy and disturbing and actually says nothing. And then he would interrogate it further and then they would tell him specific stories of, uh, uh, of, of atrocities and uh, they would start laughing. Like they would telling a story of, uh, uh, of their wife being raped and they would start laughing. So what is he gonna do with that? You know, this vague answer and then the inappropriate response to the question. So if this feels familiar to you, um, I will tell you, Andy Mills did solve that problem, and I'm going to get to how he solved it in just a little bit. Uh, Another version of this problem, some German, or actually not just German, German, Eastern European podcasters visited us at Rough Translation at the NPR studio in New York, where we're based, uh, just this Monday, and they all... Want to do American style podcast uh, storytelling. That's what they said that they were there to do. But they said, you know, we just can't do it in Germany because Germans care too much about what their neighbors think. And I said, so wait, what are you saying? That Americans have no sense of privacy? And they're like, of course you don't. (laughs) Obviously. You know, you can, you know. Um, So I'm. Given that, I mean, cautious to um, uh, draw too many cultural generalizations, I, I think it is it is possible that um, you know Americans uh, have just been blunted by three decades of reality TV and social media, and it is also possible that Germans, uh, having invented psychoanalysis, have moved the furthest from it. Uh, But um, I, I I definitely, and if you've heard rough translation, we are very wary of statements that say, "Well, you know, Americans are like this, and Germans are like this, and uh, Sudanese tell, uh, or or Sudanese are like this." So that's that's definitely not what I'm saying in this in this talk. But I do think that the um, the the sort of conventions and rules around how we ask questions, how we tell stories, are. Different, and in the and the journalist-subject relationship is also different. And when the conventions, the rules are different, sometimes the techniques that that worked in one place don't translate. So, uh, one of those conventions that I think we have is that the journalist is neutral, is um, objective. Now, that may be under I think it's even under attack at this conference, which is you know very reasonable. Debate, uh, but the conventional wisdom, I think, is that the journalist tries to be neutral generally, and uh, thus we have things like the open-ended question. Um, we're not trying to ask you for a yes or no. We want we want to hear your story. So I was in Russia uh, uh, about a few years ago. Actually, this was six years ago. This was not my first trip to the former Soviet Union, but it was my first trip as a journalist, and I was there with Marketplace which um, I think still shocks Kai that They somehow sent me to do a five-part series on the economics of healthcare in Russia. Um, Kai raised a very considerable eyebrow at that. But uh, so the, the, you know, the stakes for this were high. I was in a hospital in Yaroslavl, uh, which is this beautiful uh, uh, city four hours outside of Moscow. And these interviews were just going horribly. In fact, they weren't just bad interviews, they were sort of poetically devoid of content. You know, Uh, it was like, I would finish a whole interview. I was like, I can't believe that that answer was extended for 12 minutes and said nothing. So I became nervous, anxious, and very um, annoyed. And I started yelling at my interviewees and I started saying, look, stop talking, because I know this open, you know, I, would, I was asking open-ended questions, but now I switched to very aggressive, direct questions. And those I had been you know, saving in my arsenal for the, um, for the, for the end or for the latter, latter part of the interview, because what I'd been taught is that you, know, you don't, um, you first let people tell their story and you figure out where they're coming from it, then maybe you challenge them with things you know. But I just kind of came in directly, and they, to my surprise, didn't close down, but they started being much clearer. Their sentences were shorter. I mean, as short as Russian sentences can get, they were, uh, they were actually not only maybe agreeing with me or even adding to information that I had. So I was expecting defensive spin, and I was getting... Uh, I was getting real, respectful answers. And it, it took me a while working in, that, in, the, in the region of uh, Russia and Ukraine, but I think that what was happening is that the fundamental idea of a journalist, a journalist in, in Russia often is just is seen as having an angle. You have an angle. And so when I was not showing my angle first, it was like I was being cagey. You know? I thought I was being respectful and I was asking open-ended questions, but in fact, they took it as hiding something and, and, and being sort of um, disrespecting them, I think, uh, by putting all the burden on them uh, to have to figure out my angle, you know? So that's just an example of how, um, again, it wasn't that they weren't good talkers, but it was just that the rules of asking questions were different. Another thing is, I mean, I'll be, I can't tell you how many times I've sat down, this often happens when I was the East Africa correspondent, uh, for NPR, and I would sit down and in an interview, and I would say, uh, so yeah, I, I'm interested to hear your story. they say, it's not a story, it's true. And I was like, oh, God, I can't keep using them. We'd be on the wrong foot. Um, so again, those kinds of things you can correct. You can realize, oh yeah, story doesn't mean the same thing. Um, but sometimes these rules are more invisible, and they have to do with even core ways in which we approach our work, and we've conceived of our role. Um, So what I wanted to do in this talk is, one, brainstorm uh, some ways in which we can, in an interview when faced with a a bad talker or somebody who seems like a bad talker, kind of figure out, may there be something culturally going on here that I need to understand? Or is there some other way of working uh, with with what I'm being given? But then secondly, as a corollary, if this person is an extremely good talker and they're in a country where not a lot of people speak English and all of a sudden, they're not only speaking English, but really framing things in a you know, in a very Western, Western friendly way, should I be a little bit suspicious of that? Should I just back off and just wonder maybe what's going on a little bit? Uh, so good talkers. Uh, what, I mean, I, I guess I've been using that phrase, it's in, the, it's in the talk, but perhaps people have different definitions for it, so I'm just kind of curious, I, sh- I should have brought a pen. Um, I'll grab a pen, thanks. So, ideas of um, a good talker, I don't know, just shout it out, like what to you is a good talker? Lively. Lively. Funny. Funny. Self aware. Sorry, I'm somehow hearing this side better. <laughs>
1: Reflective.
0: Reflective.
1: <laughs> engaging. Clear. Passionate.
2: Gets to the point.
0: Passionate. Engaging. sentences. Yes.
1: Tell stories.
0: <laughs> <laughs> tell stories? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually tell stories. <laughs> With beginnings and endings. Um, yes. So, uh, great. And uh, th- I mean, th- Yes, I also have such uh, things, uh, filtering experience through the, oh yeah, I mean they're an observer of the world, their own mind this emotion thing, so we always want we want a performative thing, we want the passion, we want that uh, watching one's own feelings happening and and privileging those feelings and you know that comes I think of course from we, you know as Americans, we respect the fact that a collective experience should be understood through its, its various personal stories. You know, we want to collect different stories of what, and then and try to figure out what that event meant by understanding what it meant to you and to me and to her. Um, I think other times you, you come to a place and you realize people are doing the opposite. They're, they're filtering their own experience through the collective narrative. And, you know, that could be because of... Uh, that could be because of a culture. That could be because of an autocratic regime. That could be co- because of a huge traumatic thing like a war. Um, but it can make. How do you feel about this? A, a less than successful question. Uh, so I was in. Uh, so one one uh, I think night or sort of a very familiar example of this is when someone has a story that they do want to tell you. It's a dramatic story. But they don't. They seem to not know how to explain it in a way that a foreign audience will understand they 've never had to tell it to anybody but their own peers and um, they don't uh, they're not giving you the reference points that you need to understand the story, and you don't understand them enough to n- to hear those reference points and to glom onto them as you would with um, Uh, an interviewee that you knew. So let me give you a very specific example. So I was in Ethiopia. Uh, This was on my beat as the East Africa correspondent, so it wasn't my first trip. But on trips to Ethiopia, I had been hearing from professional women, uh, aid workers, journalists, that they were having trouble hiring Nannies and house cleaners that the, the, the reliable supply of, of girls from the sticks who were willing to work for pennies to, for the chance to live in Addis Ababa had dried up and the reason it turned out was that they were finding work on uh, construction sites in the booming capital of Addis Ababa. So I went down to one of these construction sites and uh, the way I chose that site was simply that the journalist fixer who I was working with, her cousin was a civil engineer, and sh- uh, the civil engineer, she uh, called the foreman, so we, we kind of got access to this site, and on this site, I met this uh, young woman, Makedis, she's um, 19 years old, and in fact, this is how she, 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 does. she's the only one who doesn't wear a hard hat, because the hard hats don't fit her. So, in talking to her, not only was she working on this site, I realized, but she also had worked years before as a nanny in Addis Ababa. So. Perfect character, she illustrates the story that I am trying to tell about this trend. And um, uh, I, I thought, okay, I'll do this as a profile, profile just her and tell the whole thing through her life. And But it was very clear as I sort of was interviewing her that, that I would have to do a lot of the talking and I had to figure out how to make that work. So I'm just gonna play a two minute excerpt from the kind of the middle of this story. So in this point of the story, we've already kind of dealt with her life on the construction site, which is a very challenging life, but uh, she then tells about how when she was 11 years old, her father wanted her to drop out of school and get married, but she didn't want that. Um, Marriages happen in her region around 11. Uh, uh, So the other thing is about this, that, that actually we dropped her voice uh, she's just speaking through the translator, which was a choice that I made and I probably regret. But anyway, the, the voice you'll hear is her translator. But young Makeda had other plans. First was to finish her education. For that she needed money. So against the pleas of her father, she went to Addis Ababa and found work as a live-in maid earning $4 a month. She was then 11 years old. She looked after three children, aged 6, 8 and 12. She washed laundry and though she never got inside the school, she picked them up after class and prepared their lunches. That meant rising before dawn in the cold to cook injera, a spongy flatbread. In the end, it was the cold that got her. She caught pneumonia and the woman of the house kicked her out, withholding six months of her salary, a whole $24. That left her little to take back home to her father.
3: I got sick and I went back to my father to the village. He saw me and he started crying and then I was also very shocked and I couldn't control my tears. I also cried with him. I disappointed him and that made me feel very bad.
0: Makedis helped her dad in his shop while she nursed herself back to health. And in some other period of Ethiopian history, that's where her story might have ended. At the age of 13, unable to make a good marriage because of her relatively old age and the smell of the city on her, consigned to the role of the spinster daughter taking care of her aging parents. But Makedis' convalescence came timed with a remarkable uptick in Ethiopia's economy. In 2007, Ethiopia's GDP was growing at more than 6% a year. Over the radio, in her father's shop, would come stories of women finding work in construction sites in the city. Stories almost always presented as lurid, cautionary tales about a young woman's descent into prostitution or drugs, confirming her father's worst fears about city life.
3: Usually, people in the village, they believe that people who live in the city can easily be exposed into bad life, so he was scared I might also have, like, bad friends, and they put bad influence on me.
0: Makedis listened to the same stories on the radio and heard something entirely different. A second chance. Girls were actually leaving, getting out, making salaries, becoming independent. So at 15, she found herself on a bus back to Addis Ababa. So I wanted to play that for two reasons. One is, um, here is a person who speaks of her emotion. Uh, she has a relationship with her father. She says she was disappointed when she returned. So she is, she is helping my story. But um, I, I have to, I, a lot of those details that I'm using uh, are things that I only found out Afterward or I, or I pieced together from things that she would say, so for instance, uh, I understood that she wanted to go to Addis Ababa to, to, to achieve her education, but then I had to say, "Well, how close did you get to the school?" And I understood that she had never gotten into the school. that wasn't something she told me. Uh, the radio she just casually mentioned the, the radio. I found out later that oh, the radio, they were putting stories of sort of these you know what we call lurid cautionary tales of these uh, girls who went to the city and the reason was because so many girls were going to the city that they were trying to stop the uh, influx from the countryside and she heard the code you know she she listened to the stories that wanted to say one thing and she heard independence so all this way in which i was imagining myself into her head honestly came later and the, the thing that um that I just tried to do during was just ask her a bunch of very specific details, so that I could, without trying to pretend to get in her own head, uh, just create a story of her life that would make sense to you, that would frame it in more of a um, a familiar narrative. The other thing I'm trying to do in the writing is um, use a like a different register of English that I think maybe reflects her. Um, so. It's the cold that got her, um, the smell of the city on her. As I'm listening, I, I, I hear that bumping in a tin way against uh, my NPR-isms, like um, injera, a spongy flatbread, and you know, GDP, You're like why am I talking about GDP? I'm in the middle of her story. So I would have cut that out for you guys, but then I didn't cut it out. That's why there's that little line uh, in the Pro Tools, because I was like, no, he's gotta, you gotta keep it in. Um, so, uh, in, invariably, you know, what you want to do in these cases, or what you can do in these cases, when the is that facts can be, can have emotional weight. So when the the, the person is not giving you all the emotion that you want, um, you can build their life with the facts, and and in, in, in indeed, you have a natural sort of ally in that because I mean, who has ever heard of a thirteen-year-old spinster? Um, the details of her life are so dramatic. And so uh, even if she doesn't translate them directly for you, there, there they are. So another um, uh, another thing I think is worth talking about is irony, and I'll just uh, have, um, I don't know what that is there. <laughs> uh, I'm just gonna play this for no reason. So, uh, so- 9-11.
2: No, I mean, I've always wanted to have a conversation with, about it, with
1: people. You've never talked to people about 9-11?
4: No, what's your, what's your stance? What's my stance on
1: 9-11? Oh, um, anti. It was a tragedy. I mean, we lost 19 of our best guys. Huh? <laughs> that was a joke, obviously. 9 11 was a terrible tragedy. And yeah, it's not funny to joke about it. <laughs>
0: um, so, irony, you know, it fails across cultures. Uh, in Russia, just to go back to the Russia, for example, I think Vladimir Putin he's an incredibly ironic president, which is in some ways part of his Teflon popularity. I, I, I wish American media could, and of which I am part, um, I wish we could cover Russia more, Russian president more ironically. But it's hard to do, you know, that would be hard to do. And in some ways, uh, it's the, why the success of The Daily Show and things like that are, are able to, to cover that more ironically. Um, but I will give you an example of my own failure to deal with Russian irony uh, and, and it has to do with that healthcare series I was talking about at Marketplace. Um, so I'm gonna transition from um Kamel to pharmaceutical supply chains here. And and basically there was all these pharmaceutical companies, this was the story, they were building factories in Russia, and it was kind of inexplicable from a from an economic point of view because in in, in Russia the labor is super expensive and the winters are really tough and, and you have to build everything from scratch. And so I contact this, uh, this pharmaceutical trade magazine expert guy, Yuri, and he says, oh, let's meet at this restaurant. I didn't look up the restaurant in time, so I get there and it's like $75 for a teaspoon of caviar, uh, but here we are at this restaurant and he's spooning up the caviar and he's asking me, uh, he's sort of talking to me, and I say, well, why did, are they building these factories? And he then gives me a very beautifully ironic answer, after him, I deal with this in narration, and then I meet another kind of ironic quote, but I sort of really missed the opportunity here. So I'm just going to play what Yuri said to me and then play a little bit from that story. And uh, what, what I can explain.
5: If you, if you construct your factory in Russia, you will have uh, better conditions for your
0: business activity in, uh, in this country. Better conditions. Let's stop there for a minute. And just consider this anecdote for what it's worth. About a year ago, the pharmaceutical company Novo Nordisk got a visit at its Moscow office from the Federal Anti-Monopoly Service. The FAS charged Novo Nordisk with refusing to sell drugs through Russian distributors, an antitrust violation punishable by millions of dollars in fines. Novo Nordisk had what it thought was a good defense. Those distributors did not have refrigerators. It's about the cold chain issue. Gennady Shirshov heads a coalition of drug manufacturers in Moscow. The details of the cold chain issue get complicated, but basically, to get your drug distribution license in Russia, you don't have to guarantee to keep the drugs refrigerated when you transport them. Novo Nordisk didn't contract with those distributors because it didn't want its insulin to be corrupted. Because safety comes first. But not according to the FAS. That's their opinion. Their opinion is pretty important though, right?
5: Yeah, but we are a real uh, democracy, by the way.
0: (laughs) No, no, this is a serious business, believe me. This is a serious business. And it's a big business. The Russian drug market is growing Um, 20% a year. So, if I could reverse time and go back and redo that story. I just blew right by that moment, Um, mostly because I thought, being there in Russia, that the irony was so obvious, and perhaps it is now as we're focusing on it, but I don't think it was in a Marketplace segment that's with a lot of other distractions. And also, my tone is so matching of theirs. It's so ironic, the writing. I mean, I'm saying, here's an anecdote for what it's worth, and um, the... Uh, the the FAS paid a visit. No, they stormed down the doors. They broke computers. They they scared everybody, and but a Russian way of saying it was well, they paid a visit to, to our company, you know. And so I was copying that instead of showing, instead of translating it actually, uh, and thus I was kind of speaking in euphemisms. And mostly because I mean maybe I thought that um, it wasn't. It was too American to translate, or it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't. It kind of wasn't culturally appropriate. I'm not. I'm not exactly sure what I was doing, but uh, uh, certainly there's moments I think where you just have to be totally American about it. And uh, I think in this case, I did ask him, "Well, what do you mean uh, uh, um, we're a real democracy?" I mean, I leaned into that, but he wasn't going there. I mean, that was all he was going to give me—just that little joke. So I would have rather have sort of leaned into his life, Gennady Shershov, and known more about him so that suddenly when he says that little, little thing which is not even, I don't know if it, where it gets on the level of good talkers, but I would have made it a good talker moment because it would have been this moment where we understand enough about his life to, to realize that that little reveal where I'm drilling him about the FAS having visited him, he has to Say a joke. The joke is the only way to connect with me and to kind of respect my question. And um, it could have been much more of a moment. And instead, it's just like a, a light little throwaway where he doesn't answer the question. Um, Laughter—that's my third thing. Laughter is uh, wonderful because it's so universal, and you don't need to understand. It's not—you don't need to translate it. And yet. Laughter is incredibly culturally specific, Um, or even what's funny. But let's speak about laughter itself. So uh, let's leave Russia. We'll go to South Sudan. This is actually a story that I'm working on right now um, and uh, will air next week on Planet Money. Uh, it's a story that we had always planned to do for Planet Money. And it's it's uh, this particular thing is about uh, South Sudan. So there's a brutal civil war going on there. And I'm talking to this uh, family uh, who uh, who is telling me, uh, I'm sorry, I'm talking to a guy about a family who was forced to flee. And their entire herd of cows was stolen by government soldiers. In fact, if you hear the Planet Money story, it's all about how cows are incredibly valuable in South Sudan. Um, people name children after cows. Cows are how you get married. Cows are how you sustain yourself when there's no other food. Cows are sort of your wealth. So it's a huge deal that he had all these cows, everything they'd worked for, and then they were all stolen by these uh, government militias. And anyway, so this guy is telling me a story about how he's trying to console this guy. Yes, you've lost everything you've ever worked for, but don't worry, God may come and, and then you'll get back more. So he's trying to make him feel better, but he tells the story in this way. You lost this number of cows, but if you have faith
4: in God, uh, you know, things will be okay. When peace come, you'll get more cows than what you had before. <laughs> so, so, why do uh, you laugh? Why do you
0: laugh?
4: Yeah, because, uh, you know, this this, this is because we, we think this is story, you know, it represents a very important uh, part of what we are talking about.
0: Okay, so completely confusing. He says, he starts laughing when he's telling me about consoling the guy. I said, why are you laughing? He says, oh, because this is... This is very appropriate to the story we're trying to tell you. So then his friend James, who was also cracking up, steps in, and James says, "Well, yeah, he's laughing because the guy who lost the cows, well he had twin girl, two twin baby girls, and they were living off the milk that the cows were giving, but now the cows are gone."
6: And then because the mother had no enough milk to feed the to feed the twins now, the twins, two of them pass away. Mm. Then when he thinks that okay, these children's path away because the cows were being com- con- uh,
4: confiscated and if not like that these twins would be exactly
0: uh, w- will not uh, exactly died they would be alive um, so i never would have known about the story of, that was going on if i hadn't leaned in and asked him about the laughter in fact I would have thought that the laughter meant that it wasn't that important or it was just sort of a silly little story, wasn't a big deal, and I would have moved on. But by asking about the laughter, and asking twice, because I think, I I cut that out, I again ask them why they're laughing. Then I was able to sort of push the rock away from the cave and and go inside. And um, I asked about the laughter because I had worked in that region Uh, as the correspondent, the NPR correspondent, and I'd I'd actually encountered it so often, where uh, I was in Somalia, for instance, and a fellow was talking to me about uh, some journalists who were murdered, some uh, journalists have one of the highest rates of being murdered in Somalia, and he told the story about a friend, and he started laughing, telling the story, and I said, why are you laughing? And he said, well, I guess I'm embarrassed. He he looked embarrassed, and and he said, oh, I laugh so my blood pressure doesn't go up, you know, which is another joke. And it's like this you're bushwhacking through all this ironic distance and all these jokes, which, um, you know, again, I'm not going to interpret it. I don't know if it's uh, because you don't want the devil to get you by seeming sad. You You don't have time for grief because you're still in the war. I mean, there's lots of reasons we could put on it, but basically in terms of techniques or in terms of what we do, it's leaning into things that you don't understand and just saying okay well the laughter it sounds to me like this and it's going to sound to my audience like this so I gotta ask you about it but let's maybe there's going to be something there and I'm not going to be turned turned off by it. Um, uh, Andy Mills in that South Sudan, I'm sorry, in the Sudan interviews that I was telling you about where the people were saying, uh, you know, the bad men came and the women were sexed, and then they were laughing during the interviews. He realized that if he laughed with them, they would tell him these stories. But as soon as he started being, saying, oh, that that sounds horrible, that sounds really, you know, just being normally empathetic to stories of tragedy they would say, they would laugh further and they would clam up and they'd say, you British, I think they thought he was British, but they were like, you think you're so, and and they would get mad at him, actually. Um, Now, why? I don't know, because maybe he was bringing these tears and they couldn't deal with that or they just didn't want it, I don't know. But basically, he had to giggle his way through this extremely emotional interview, but he did, and um, uh, I I applaud him for it. I, I think if I had a magic wand and could just kind of zap one word out of pitch consideration rooms, it would be the word creepy. Um, I don't actually know if there are such things as pitch consideration rooms, but where those pitches are considered. Um, because the word creepy, you know, it, it means uh, what? Unfamiliar. I don't think I'm going to like this person. I don't think I'm going to relate to this person. But that's your job. You're, the job is to make them relatable. Not everybody can be made relatable, but I, I think that m- almost everybody can. And especially if there are things that you're in it's a cultural distance, you have to just assume that, that, that there's an exercise in that, that it's worth doing that. Now, now when you're doing the actual story and you get to a line apart and it's like, well, that's kind of creepy. Yeah, you have to adjust that. You have to figure out how to contextualize it so it doesn't sound creepy. But don't do that in the pitch or to a pitch. <laughs> um, so, let me, uh, uh, so it was, com- it was sort of conversations like this and was being, hearing the word creepy uh, flung in my direction of my stories and it was also dealing with laughter and all these other kinds of cultural translation things that sort of inspired the uh, creation of Rough Translation, which is um, our podcast. I have a little slide from that, so here it is. And... Um, Rough translation is is basically what we do is we take conversations that are happening here and hear how they're playing out in a different corner of the world uh, with the idea of um, hearing it from a non-American perspective or things that we think are familiar in a different, uh, contextualized in a different way, in a global way. Um, But right away in our first episode, which was about Brazil, uh, we realized that we were going to deal with this problem of good talkers, because you can talk all you want about good talkers, but we still need them. We need good talkers. We need to, because there's a, it's a competition for stories out there. So uh, here's the first three minutes of the episode, and then we'll talk about the two decisions that we made in this thing. We're on the second floor of a government building in a lush corner of Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. About a dozen job candidates are waiting here in this echoey hallway for their names to be called. Oh man! <laughs> Pedro Achila is the oldest of the job seekers. He's 44 years old, big guy. He tells me and my interpreter that he needs this job to give him his life back. When you say that you'd have your life back, what piece of your life would you change first?
6: Primeira coisa que eu vou
0: fazer.
2: I'll enjoy not having to wear a uniform when I go to work.
0: Pedro hates everything about his work uniform.
1: He hates the blue stripes,
0: half the width of the white stripes. He hates the three black buttons that start at the collar and then stop inexplicably at his sternum. Pedro graduated a prestigious university, but that was 20 years ago, and he's got this nightmare that he'll bump into an old classmate. The classmate in a tie or a blouse, driving a nice car, Pedro in his uniform. No uniform in see. Pedro is here to change all that. Government jobs are a big deal in Brazil. They're jobs for life. He and the others have taken these day-long examinations, beating out thousands of others. Though this final interview will have nothing to do with their skills. What about you? Are you hoping they'll see? You? Well,
6: I hope that they see that I, <laughs> I I'm,
2: I'm not white. You know?
0: There is a new law in Brazil that gives more government jobs to black Brazilians. The catch, though, is this. Anyone who wants one of these jobs has to prove to a panel of judges that he or she qualifies. And this is not so easy to determine in Brazil. In fact, if you ask Pedro you know, what color he is, how would you describe that shade? Do you compare it to, like, an actor? Ah, for various Andy Garcia. Andy Garcia, the Cuban-born actor who plays Italian gangsters. Oh, Usher, singer, or Usher, yes,
4: Usher.
0: Andy Garcia, and Usher, the R and B singer. If you picture these two celebrities in your mind, Andy Garcia and Usher, Pedro believes he has a striking resemblance to both men both men who, in America at least, would be nowhere near each other on the color wheel. I have a black guy's nose,
2: a black guy's lips, but white guy's hair.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and it's not just Pedro. Lots of people here are worried their hair is too straight.
6: Uh, hair? Or
0: their color is too light. One candidate I met said he searched for his skin tone on Wikipedia. And only then decided, yeah, he was dark enough.
6: I don't know what they judge. I mean, my nose is not that big. So does that mean I'm not black?
0: This sounds crazy. What are they going to do in that room? Are they going to hold rulers up to people's lips and paint chips to their cheeks? And yet, this is the solution that Brazil has come up with to make Brazil less racist. Okay. So here we are telling a story about uh, Brazil. Brazil has imported this idea from America, affirmative action. They want to give more jobs to black Brazilians. Uh, The inequities, racial inequities in Brazil are huge. And in my mind... You know, this was a simple kind of problem solution. Solution creates more problems, kind of story. And what I was gonna thinking was, okay, you know, you bring in these panels because the problem is in Brazil, uh, race is fluid. How are we gonna know who's black or who's white? So then you suddenly you have these five-person panels deciding who's black and who's white, and that causes more. problems in my this is how I was conceiving of the story and in fact there was a a debate in the New York Times where different Brazilians were writing in about this and uh, one person said yeah these are these 19th century racial tribunals and and so to me it was like oh yeah so there's one side that says we need this another side says no this is very offensive and so I was going to find someone follow them through the process and somebody who kind of was in between both sides you know someone who wanted the job but felt uncomfortable with the process. And then when I was conceiving of my fantasy tape, I was thinking that they would say, yeah, I really hope I get this job, but oh, God, I have to do it through this way. I mean, that, that's kind of how I imagined what they were gonna say. And I was either imagining shame, you know, again, thinking about the good talkers, emotion, performative, I was thinking shame. I feel weird about this, I feel judged. I was, I was thinking anger or, God, why does it have to be like this? This is kind of crazy. How are they gonna look at me and decide what race I am? So, I mean, I was assuming a lot of things. First, I was assuming that, A, people would feel, especially job seekers, would feel empowered in this situation to criticize the system that was going to give them a job. Secondly, that they would do that criticism publicly with a foreigner. Third, that they were valuing those opinions over that of experts who had said this is the way. But fourth was uh, something that I didn't really understand at all, which was that... In Brazil, the idea of judging race on phenotype is not that crazy. It's not that unusual. In fact, in Brazil, you can say, oh, my, my, my sister is white, but I'm black. And same parents, um, that color. So, so um, uh, this kind of fluidity, this kind of way in which people conceive of race, anyway, that, that's what we deal with in the, in the piece. We don't have to get into that now. But the point is that what I was imagining that people would get kind of razzed up about was not the thing that they were um, kind of concerned about. In fact, the very thing that they were concerned about was the idea of drawing lines at all. And in fact, that New York Times piece the, the, and the the line, 19th century racist tribunals, which stuck in my mind as being such a signpost for my story, in fact, that's what white Brazilians were saying. Not that it's not a valid point of view, but that has to be contextualized in terms of that was, that, a, that was a position that was not being expressed by uh, darker-skinned Brazilians. By and large, there's obviously d- uh, um, uh, differences. And we interviewed people of, of in, in all kinds of ways. So, I mean, we, we interviewed all different uh, colors, who had all different opinions. But basically, if I was going to take that 19th century racist tribunal, which would feel so American and not contextualize it, I would be doing a disservice. So in our search for a good talker, we realized we couldn't get someone who was feeling bad about these panels. And um, we had to go with, and we went with Pedro pretty much because he gave us the most time. Uh, I spent like seven hours with him and he, and he also, he was the oldest, and I, I, I thought I was attracted to that, uh, that he was the oldest in this, in this process. But the thing was that when he talked about race, he was very jokey. But when he talked about his uniform, he was super serious and very specific. And he even said to me, he said, oh, I don't really care what race they think I am in the panel, but I hope they don't see my uniform and think that I'm something other than the educated person I am. And so I realized, this is not a story about race, this is a story about how you're seen. And so what we decided was, before we were even gonna get to the the piece, we were gonna lean into what he is a good talker about, which is his uniform. And um, it, we also kind of um, spent a lot of time kind of setting that context. I think it's like a minute and a half until we actually get to the, to the, to the, to these race panels. Um, so it, it's always a challenge because when we're, when we did a, the morning edition version of this of this uh, piece, so it's a podcast, it's 30 minutes, but when we did a, a morning edition version, uh, we shortened it and we didn't have the uniform and we didn't have time for that. So we just went right to the news. And that line that he says, where he says, um, I have a potato nose, white guy's hair, and black guy's lips, and he laughs. You know? that was scheduled to air the Monday after Charlottesville. And there was a a lot of conversation in the NPR among the editors or with my editor about that that just felt, it felt like a flippant way of talking about race at a time when people were really not in the mood to hear a flippant way of talking about race. And yet, we couldn't cut out the laughter, I was quite sure about that, because it would actually make it worse if he was like, yes, I have a white guy's nose and a black guy's lips. We have to understand that he is joking, but why is he laughing? And what we ended up doing was making the laughter a little quieter and shortening it, I think. It was a odd compromise, but I think it worked. Um, the point is, though, that um, you know, when, when we search for people that are relatable and who, who, who see the world as we see it, who, who will... Get outraged when we're outraged. Who will cock their eyebrow at the, when we are have it cocked? Um, we can find ourselves falling into a very American way of seeing the story, and we can bias ourselves and bias our audiences with before we even began. And it is re- it is really tough to push back on. Now, I'm not actually just talking about my conversation with my editor, which I thought went very was very productive and very helpful, but. Um, a story that uh, I, will, I will end with now, which is came up in our third episode, which is uh, called The Congo We Listen To. Um, I met a woman named uh, Laura Heaton. She's a freelance journalist in Nairobi. And uh, when I met her, sh- I remember thinking, wow, this is a person who really sticks to a place and doesn't like to parachute into a place. Uh, a person who really wants to understand. And I, I remember thinking that because I'm always, sounds silly to say but i'm always a little worried about that kind of person trying to make it as a journalist it is it's really hard to want to spend so much time in one place and really really understand that place because you you well you it, it, it can be hard. and and it's also bad to just parachute into a place for 2 days and think you understand a place i think that you, it's it's useful to have a kind of distance and it's useful to remember your role as a translator so Again, that was my thinking when I met Laura, but I liked her a lot and I thought she had a, a, uh, you know, a, a good heart and a good approach to stories and really tried to understand. And then she told me about this thing that happened to her while I knew her that, that almost made her not want to be a journalist um, uh, going forward. And so the story begins in 2011. Uh, she'd heard about this, this, this mass rape in, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, and the, the Congo is known, it has sort of different appellations in, in American news media. It's called the rape capital of the world. People uh, often talk about rape used as a weapon of war. It's a huge, real, major problem in the, in, the, in the on again, off again. Conflict has been going on there for two decades. And she went to uh, visit eight months, at, well, it was the largest mass rape on record, and she went eight months later. She did not go to cover what had happened, she went to cover the aftermath. She wondered if all this international spotlight had actually made a difference to the people. And she specifically did not want to interview women who were raped because she said, "You know, I'm not trying to traumatize people or, or hear other stories. I just want to find out, are you guys getting the food you need? Are you getting the help you need, the, tr- uh, the counseling, et cetera. But as soon as she went there, she was told, well, of, of course you have to meet these women. The, the, they are waiting for you. I mean, she's just shown up in this village. There's no cell phone. So she showed up on a motorcycle taxi. And they're like, oh, Western journalists, quick, let's get ready. And so she she felt compelled to listen to the stories of these women that were already waiting, and she heard them. And she, one story after another just didn't seem like the way in which she'd heard stories of sexual violence in other places. Um, she'd done interviews in Rwanda, and they were just... They didn't. They weren't vague. They were very direct. They were specific. They were. Um, they were. Uh, they were very graphic in a way that she had not heard uh, stories like that being told. So, in uh, in Africa, and so she, um, she decides. Okay, that was that was weird. That was odd. That's it. She's just gonna kind of move on from there. But uh, her interpreter sort of feels. Uh, no, there's something else going on here. And she says,
2: Something is amiss. It felt so insensitive and so confusing that I maybe would have just left it.
0: Insensitive to whom?
2: To the women, to somehow suggest that I didn't believe that story. And I was talking to my colleague, like once we were away from the elders and away from the women, I just said something like, that was a strange experience.
0: Christian looks at her. He does not look confused, or hesitant, or awkward. He was furious. I I thought that these women were
4: trying to lie to us, you know.
2: He thought they were lying, that they had not actually been raped. And he, being Congolese, I think, felt like he could ask these questions that I don't know that I would have ventured to ask.
0: So something doesn't add up, but she's also got the permission of a local. She goes forward with this asking questions and finds out from first a medical worker and then also a, a, a local uh, hotel manager that that perhaps it's true, perhaps that uh, the mass rape that was reported here by the UN, by all the Western journalists had, n- had not happened the way it was reported. Um, but what quickly interests her is not actually what happened in this village, but the fact that people are talking about um, stories, rape stories, so differently that they're actually acting as if, oh yeah, it's something you tell and you know, they told it and it, 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 it's like completely uh, cheapened and she, she doesn't know how to deal with this. Um, and so, because in, in Congo, rape is so stigmatized. So she was a reporter, she was a print reporter and a lot of anonymous sources. So she was talking to me about this story. I realized I needed to do some reporting myself I called a fixer I've worked with a lot. I asked him, could he find me a story of somebody who, was, who, had, who had lied about this story? It was not easy. This is my I fixer, Ferdinand Benguiluendo. He said it was the hardest assignment I'd ever given him.
4: I passed for five, six places.
0: Women would ask him, why would I want to saw off the branch I'm sitting on? That they couldn't saw the branch on which they're sitting. Why would I want to tell a Western journalist about lying? Do you think that you can say it? Finally, he did find one woman willing to meet me. Provide that the story is kept secret. As long as I didn't use her last name. Okay, great. If you're comfortable, then tell me a little bit about yourself, who you are.
6: Me, Deborah.
0: Deborah? Deborah is 21. She wears a red shawl, black skirt, flip-flops.
6: I have come here to see my story and defend myself.
0: Uh, So Deborah tells me that she was 16, she was living in this village, Minerva, and what she would notice is that agencies would show up, aid agencies, and they would be offering services, all kinds of services, microcredit, entrepreneurship, uh, training, tuition assistance, food, Uh, but they would be targeted for rape survivors. And so a few women told her, you know, you should go up, you should tell a story. Um, She was supporting three younger brothers, so one day she she did uh, get in line. She says her questioners were black people and white
6: people. They asked me my story, and I told them I had been raped by three armed men.
0: So she, in return for telling the story, she she gets a bag of rice, a bag of peas, and a jerry can full of oil for cooking. Later she'll get the equivalent of $50. Uh, And she remembers that she's bringing all this food home, and her her brothers come out of the house and they're, they're cheering, they're dancing, they're excited. She and her older sisters start boiling the rice, cooking the peas. But as the smell of the food wafts into the house, uh, the more sick she feels.
6: Yes, I was feeling very sad. We did not even have appetite to eat that food because we did not feel we were entitled to eat. I have stolen. I am a thief.
0: Um. Incidentally, I think just something to note in passing. Uh, when she speaks that way, she she uses a small, n- non-verbal uh, kind of gesture. Just you know, and it um, it's really nice when you have a, a, a language that you, your audience doesn't understand. If you can find gestures like that, a little gesture that translates across language because it it gives you the uh the emotion she's feeling in that moment but uh as i'm digging into this story and i'm um i'm following in the footsteps of this other reporter i end up talking to her interpreter and finding out something that that laura herself had not known which is that he had had a role in this kind of um economy of stories
4: myself i've worked in uh the in, in, in the NGOs, so I know I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I know what I'm talking about. Hey, have I, you have you done that? Yes, I've uh, I've done this, so that's why I know that this happens. Wow.
0: Yeah. So how does it work? How did you do it? The donor says that this is what I know. You know, he gives you his conditions. Still, so. your bosses would say we want you to interview like, yeah, hundred. Rape victims?
4: Yeah, yeah they're, they're, <laughs> they're very easy to get. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <do> <laughs> if if
0: yeah, yeah, if you want a hundred raped women, I, I'll get them. Christian says he never told women so, to lie. He didn't really right, yeah. have to.
4: They know the the code. What do you mean the code? Yeah, the code. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's a code.
0: So the code is um, if you say this story, and this is transmitted both implicitly and sometimes explicitly, if you say this story, it'll be easier to raise money with that story from Western donors, and then um, we can bring money to you. So it goes all the way I almost, when I was doing this story, imagined it as a chain—a a kind of human empathy chain—and then on one end of the chain is somebody reading a newspaper. I always pictured it as like a real, old-fashioned newspaper, and they get to, you know, page eight of the international section or something, and um, you know, they see a story, and it's just, oh yeah, it's just another international story. But then they see a a, a story, say, about sexual violence in Congo, and they stop, and it's, and they they want to focus on that story. So that act of empathy—and wait, I should care about this—that is that has sort of value. And that's a value that then gets uh, kind of monetized by uh, donors who uh, earmark funds for a certain issue. And it doesn't obviously have to be sexual violence. I mean, we can um, can be uh, amputees in uh, Liberia or um, orphans in Sierra Leone. I mean, there are often uh, issues that symbolize for us a war, especially a far off war. And, uh, that people on the other end of this chain would get the message, oh, I see. This is the story that you care about. This is the story that has you know, that has the coin that can translate. Um, now, if you again, if you hear the rest of the episode, we, we go into what happens actually when Laura does try to reveal this code and how she gets attacked uh, professionally. But I, I think I just wanna focus, I just wanna end with this idea of the currency of stories because we, I think very naturally we feel uncomfortable talking about a currency of stories. You know, people we we like to think of our our role. I mean, obviously we're also trying to make make a living, but we when we go out there we're just here to listen. We're just here to listen to stories. And um I I I hear people frame their their work a lot like that, I've done it myself, but when you work in especially impoverished countries or countries at a different power relationship to the United States, you know you are confronted by the transactional nature of this relationship. And it's not just that people ask for money. In fact, that actually happens not as often as one would maybe think it, could, it would happen. Uh, I remember though, one interviewee, she asked me for some money in NPR's policies. We obviously, we don't pay interviewees, but, um, She said, you know, look, I mean, if you journalists, if if I saw that when you journalists came something changed, then obviously I would tell my story for free, but because absolutely nothing changes and then you just keep on making me tell my story, uh, at least pay me for it. Um, Which is very reasonable, I thought. I mean, very, it's hard to answer. Um, But still it's a good policy to not pay interviewees for a whole set of uh, reasons. But we're in this economy, right, where stories compete for your attention. And we can shy away from this or we can just try to do it better. And so what I would leave you with is the idea that our job is to add value to stories. And if we are asking people about the same story that they've told other Western journalists, then we are sending that message. But if we instead go in new directions and and if we find ourselves... um, asking different kinds of stories, leaning into the thing that they didn't expect us to lean into, um, you, you know, we, we might get surprised by the result. And if you are stuck with all this bad talkers, I mean, if you if you just find yourself with all this unrelatable tape, it doesn't maybe mean that you're doing something wrong. It may mean you're doing something right. You have to continue going on that road, that you have to, laugh when people are laughing inappropriately, that you have to lean into the creepy. Um, You have to go to the places they feel passionate about, even though you think no American is going to feel as passionate as this person is feeling about this thing. But you just think, okay, in the writing, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make that passion make sense. And when we do that, I think um, there's an enormous, enormous value that we add to things. Um, and, of course, if you're doing that, I would like you to contact me because we would love to talk about doing rough translation story together. Thank you.
5: Yeah, I'd like to know um, what you look for in a translator, if you kind of pre-interview the translators or anything. and. Also, if you do interviews remotely, like, if you would consider doing, if it came to interviews remotely, like a three-way call with a translator.
0: Um, So, wait, the question is, do you consider interviewing the translator?
5: Yeah, firstly, like, like, picking a certain translator over another. Yeah. And, but also, would you consider doing a three-way call remotely with someone in another language?
0: Yes, so do you mean, um... I am sorry, I just want to sure do you mean making the translator also part of your story
5: or Yeah, you, because because which I've done. you yeah. might yeah, because you play the audio of the translator, so obviously that audio matters. Oh yeah. So know, using and the a good f- translator might might make better audio or if the the translator, you know, delivers a certain level of emotion and clarity, yeah, you might pick them over another one. Is that something you worry about?
0: Oh yeah, all the time. I mean I think that the translation in the field is um, is almost always better than the translation in the uh, in the studio you know we all I think does dislike that kind of voiceover tape um, and yeah there's I mean there's a number of things you can do uh, you can because because the challenge you're going to deal with is if, of course a field translation may not be as clear uh, or as accurate so that's the problem I mean I've Thought, oh, this is a perfect field translation, but then it's slightly wrong. And so, what do you do with that? So, I think um, in some cases you can have the field translator translate it again. If you say, you know, what that that little bit was, did he actually say that that way? If you're really quite sure that that was a good part, you can have them do it again or listen back to the tape so they get it right. But they're in the moat, they're in the mood, uh, they're in the kind of emotional mode. Um, and another thing I think is is sort of useful to do is to include yourself perhaps in the translation. Um, if you're interrogating, I've used this, I've used where I'm interrogating the translator and trying to figure out what it means because if we're trying to search for what it means, that search sometimes makes good tape itself um, and, and excuses a mistranslation before because you're, 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 you're seeking it together with the audience. So that's, uh, yeah, using field translator tape and having them speak in the eye is also really valuable because they'll inar- invariably say, he said, but if, if they can use the I, that's, that's useful.
3: Um, I'm just wondering how long your tape tends to be after. I don't know if you have like an, an average, you know, for a seven minute clip or something.
0: You mean how much tape I have in relation to the size of the to story? To the
3: actual, to what's actually published, yeah. How long do your interviews tend to be? Um, including, and I'm assuming it takes, it might take longer considering the translation. The translators there with you. Yeah,
0: I know. It's killer. Um, I'm, I don't know. There are some people out there. I mean, I reference at least Spiegel and she's, she, she, her interviews are definitely longer than mine. Um, I feel like, uh, yeah, there's not, there's not any, speci- I mean, I don't think I tend to do long, really, really long stuff. I, I think, if I'm spending three hours with somebody, that feels like a that's toward the that's toward the upper end. I mean, I almost would prefer to then just come back the next day. I don't, I don't know. I, that's just me per, me personally. I sort of feel like I'll get more if I come back. I I will do something where I spend multiple days with a person, and that is incredibly useful, even if it's just short bursts, because you've slept and you just realize something, and then you get to come back at them, and so. Yeah, rather than the length of time of one interview, if you can arrange a multiple day thing, that could be good. But sometimes it's a very short, sh- short conversation and then you're just making calculations and it's very hard to get them to be a good talker in a short conversation because you don't know what to, you know, where, unless they're excited to play about the thing you want them to be emotional about, which you know hardly ever happens, it's hard to follow it where it's supposed to go. So you have to go long. Um,
4: I'm interested in the perspective of foreign reporting being sort of empathetic and critical at the same time and involving this translating work. And I'm wondering now that there's a sort of renewed interest in local and regional reporting in the United States, if uh, you have any sort of perspectives or ideas on how foreign reporting could be used domestically, how that perspective is relevant in translating sort of regional
0: experiences to a national audience or something like that? Oh yeah. Massively, I mean, I don't even think of it as, um, yeah, I mean, we have, these, we have these categories in the newsroom, we say, we used to say foreign desk, now we say international desk, but it, it, is, it is silly to think that um, the international desk deals with everything other than America. You know? Our whole conceit in rough translation is that we live in a much more connected world and if we understand Ourselves we may need to follow that idea somewhere else currently we 're crossing borders, but I think you could just as easy cross just as easily cross borders that are domestic i you know?
2: 'm um, curious you know you talked about coming up against the challenge with sources and interviewees who are sort of expecting something on the other end of a transaction and mm-hmm. I'm just curious how you how you respond to people who, who have given you hours and hours of their time, days of their time, um, and you know who you're not going to pay. But what what kind of assurances you feel comfortable giving them about what is going to kind of come on the other end of this?
0: Yeah, I mean it's huge. I, I mean, uh, I mean, yeah, you never, you never. I don't think it's ever. There's never like a perfect script to say, because you're obviously, it's like a two masters problem. You know, it's a feeding two masters problem. On the one hand, uh, you have a duty to, well, to, I mean, the journalistic enterprise, but more than that, you're, you're trying to do a great story that people will engage with and connect with, and so you suddenly have to follow them here there, um, take much more of their time than they ever possibly expected. Uh, but then on the other hand, you need to realize um, that even your presence sometimes, even, and this is why I hate the whole thing that people pay interviewees, because then you show up and you've gone into somebody's house and now you left and now they all the neighbors are like, hey, what'd you get from that from that guy, right? So even if, it's just even by coming, you will create uh, maybe unwanted attention, or yeah, you're using up their time. You're, I, I think attention is a more dangerous weapon than, than time, personally. Um, uh, so yeah, I don't think that there's any specific thing you can say. I do think, though, that um, two things. One is, of course, you need to have a good conversation if it is a foreign language if you you do want to have a very clear conversation with your interpreter beforehand so that you explain what you're why you're there what you're trying to do what the mission is maybe what the story you're trying to tell and have a, just remember that story i think i i do think that a lot of people want to be heard i mean they 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 definitely want to be seen. I mean, I think there's that universal desire to be seen and seen well. So, I mean, yeah, I've had moments where I'll say to somebody, I say, look, I, it feels like I just asked you a question that from your body language, every journalist has asked you. And they'll say, yeah, totally. I was like, well, why do you think that we're always asking that? You know, so I may try to turn it about our interaction, like get a little more meta, like, okay, look, so we're, we're doing this journalist subject thing, so why? What's going on? And then they get a perspective on that as opposed to just my narrow-minded questions.
2: Um, I, wa- I wanna hear more about the first story that you showed us where you had to piece together kind of the emotion of um, disappointment out of the person's uh, story that they told you about having to return home kind of Mm -hmm. empty-handed. Because I'm struck by the fact I used to work in disaster management in Bangladesh. And uh, one of the things that I kind of gathered from that experience is that um, people's emotional reactions to tragedy uh, were just very different from what I expected. And I'm very interested by that incongruity. And I guess I just wonder how you balance um, the necessity of kind of translating someone's experience to an audience who might be able to find a way in through the way they might react in that and presenting them with incongruous emotions so that they understand the way that uh, a cr- different cultures might like engage with the world.
0: Yes, it's, uh, I'm very glad you asked that, I mean, I think about that all the time. I think, um uh, so two quick examples. One is that when um, in the, in the in Congress emotion, as you call it, I mean we, we definitely deal with that in uh, rough translation by trying to, well, for instance, spending a lot of time setting up the different contexts so that when the emotion arrives it will it won't feel that strange. I mean, if it feels incongruous, you know, if you go the other way, you distance the person, and then you're like, no, 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 but why they felt, why they just laughed in this situation? That's, I mean, you know, laughter alone, I mean, I was, uh, I think we wrestled with that where I would, I would cut out the emotion, and so we wanted to try to figure out how we get those incongruous emotions, because there's a lot of power. You know, if somebody's laughter is because, not because they're in joy, but they just, they wanna, the grief is so inexpressible that they, um, that has to, be, has to be presented as, as its opposite. You know, that's, that is such a more powerful sort of uh, narrative than, oh, this poor victim, you know? So the, it's not just about anthropological interest, it's about actually giving a fully rounded person, you know? Uh, in the Ethiopia example, I mean, I realized that there I had an advantage, which is in some way that her intentions, her desires in the world were so, I mean, I don't want to use this word, American, but very familiar to an American. She wanted an education. She worked hard to get it. She didn't get it that way. She came back disappointed to her dad. She felt like a failure, but then she had this other opportunity, a second chance. Even the idea of a second chance. I mean, that is, that's like an American fairy tale right there. And so it's, it's very... Actually, that story was very easy to frame her trajectory in a way that people will understand the difference, that the, the details that people you know feel unfamiliar is like, you know, at eleven years old they, they want to make an arranged marriage. So she escapes her home. Thirteen years old. By thirteen years old, she's got the smell of the city on her, and she's she's uh, doomed to be a spinster. Like that's the foreignness, but it's in a in a familiar story. Uh, but in another context, you know, like the Brazil story. Uh, you need a lot more translation because you're coming from a different perspective. Does that that sort of answer the question? I mean, I think dealing with, I mean, that's the whole thesis of this talk actually, which is that trying to to bring in in incongruous emotions is like a wonderful enterprise.
2: I guess I just, like I wonder if there's ever a place where you get stuck and then like the framing ends up being about you grappling with the fact that you can't possibly translate this person's experience in a way that feels true or... There or to their situation.
0: Right, do I get stuck? Yes. Well, I mean, I'll tell you, even the story that I'm working on for South Sudan, like my log, the log of the tape, so I'm transcribing the tape, it's full of, of all these notes to myself, like, oh my god, what he said, I said, well, he said it was beautiful, and I said, what well, was beautiful about it? And then he says, it was beautiful because I got to eat every day, which as a three-year-old, working in a cattle camp, uh, because my my parents, my mother, my sisters back in the village didn't. So suddenly my conception of beautiful is running up against his conception of beautiful, right? And then two sentences later, something else like a translation happens. And I'm like, oh my God, people are gonna love this. This is so interesting, but <laughs> so little of that actually does make it into the piece because unfortunately that's just just about me. I mean, I happen. To, I think it's interesting that I thought that was beautiful and then he came with a different definition of beautiful i get excited about that but again that didn't serve the story the story is not about a cattle camp it's not about what's beautiful it's it's about something specific so you have to choose your you have to choose wisely and if you just find that one bit that that you know you want to contextualize you know you want people to to come away with and understand and the best uh example of success is when someone just doesn't notice it. I mean, they think, oh yeah, that person's emotions were so real, but if they heard just that cut, you know, in a raw tape, they would have cut it because they wouldn't have understood why that person is, um, you know, expressing that emotion. So yeah, uh, I my, my tape is littered with failed attempts to translate. I have a
6: question about what you think about your audience and how much needs explaining and how much do they know about, for example, Africa, and how much they don't?
0: Yes, um, I assume they know nothing about Africa. I just assume that. And um, you know, European podcasters sometimes criticize our assumption of our audience as being not even knowing anything. Um, but I, I, yeah, I just I have to include everybody and I have to just assume that people don't know anything. Um, and that can, yeah, then you can get lines like, injera, a spongy flatbread, which is just so dumb, but uh, but I think the opposite is that you you just assume people know injera and then, then you screwed up that way too. So I, I think it's important to work with people at zero. You can imagine a different audience, and, and there's lots of people who've come up to me and said, that they want to do an Arabic podcasting network or they want to do a Japanese language podcasting network in all kinds of ways of re-envisioning audiences, which I think I totally applaud. It's just not what I'm doing. Thank you.
1: So you talked at the beginning about um, how in radio, we're taught to uh, turn people into good talkers, to take someone who's not communicating very well. Um, But in particular, a lot of those techniques we've learned work for people who are native English speakers and the audience is assumed to be native English speakers or Americans specifically. And it just occurred to me, I wonder, have you ever been in that situation where, like what you were describing with the Russians, or I've encountered this in East Africa where people people are being in a way they they're being vague in a way that that might seem vague to an American audience but you understand exactly what they're trying to communicate to you maybe it's ironic maybe it's arch maybe it's just sort of coded like oh he's getting something for that and you understand full well he's saying this official is taking a bribe but it's just not that blunt and one of those one of those tricks that we're taught I remember learning this at a third coast a long time ago is help the person you're speaking to, the person you're interviewing, imagine the audience, or maybe an exaggerated version of the audience. Like, you know, it's your hard of hearing grandfather, or it's a smart eight year old, or your drunk uncle, or something like that, as a way, you know, particularly academics, of getting them to simplify or slow down. And have you ever tried a version of that? Have you ever tried a version of, and I'm I'm not sure this would work, but I'm just curious. Yes. Did it work?
0: <laughs> I mean, it you did. You know, yes, of course, that can work for sure. Um, I, I I prefer rather than the drunk uncle version. My my version is tends to be um, well. H- how can we frame this for you know an American audience who may not know X or Y or Z? And yeah, I, I'm always doing that. Always doing that. And yes, so that totally can help. Um, but I think you're right that the. Uh, People feel. I mean, that was one of the things that people said about the the trying to do podcasts in Germany or this this group of international podcasters. Another thing they said was that there's a culture of expertise in Germany uh, where they 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 are told by the the people that they should be. Well, they they're asking the wrong person. They should be asking an expert. Um, I mean, I think that I think that also happens in America. So there's a lot of techniques that can transfer. It just sometimes they fail. Yeah.
1: And, and do you say literally like? say this for an American audience, or do you say, say it for people who are more blunt, or say it for people who have no sense of humor, or?
0: (laughs) Yes, be unfunny and blunt. (laughs) Code word, America, I know. Uh, No, I I, yeah, I've said both, I've said all. I just mean that the drunk uncle thing or the tell it to me at the bar doesn't work for me. I tend to like, uh, how can we frame this for them? (laughs) I said, that's just a formulation that works for me better. Yeah.
5: Hey, I was just wondering if you could um, riff on working with fixers, just some of the nitty gritty, some of the, um, I mean, in this, the, the Congo example for, uh, it seemed like it was really important and it took a long time to track something down, but you're also putting a lot of trust in an individual in a foreign country. So how do you, how do you do it?
0: Yeah, there's so many stories about that, but basically, um, that can be a huge trap you know you end up seeing seeing the the war or the conflict or the the country through the eyes of your guide um, somebody once told to me a piece of advice which I thought was quite useful they said that if it was actually a former marine who told me this he said um, you know if the person is acting that they alone are the difference between your safety and your danger or if they if they have positioned themselves to you as the thing standing between you know, safety and your death, definitely fire that person. <laughs> because that person is, is very controlling and is, is untrustworthy. Um, they shouldn't be in control. They, they, sh- not, they don't control your, your safety decisions. They don't control the, the questions you ask, uh, the people you wanna talk to, uh, and yet you rely on them from so much. So it's a very, very challenging relationship. Yeah, we could could talk more after, I mean, specifics about the specific situation you're in in working with. but It's fraught.
3: Hi, uh, my name's Kat, and in a recent episode of How Sound by Rob Rosenthal, he talks about how you are one of the most lyrical writers for radio out there. There's this one line I think about almost daily where you talk about Sisyphus in a ski suit. I think it's, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's really well done. Um, and he cites that. Uh, one of the things that you do that terrifies me, it treads this line that I I as a writer want to walk, but it's a hard one, is how do you write beautifully and kind of put in the words that your subjects aren't necessarily saying, right? Without objectifying them, without speaking for them, maybe words they wouldn't agree with. And we want people to be able to understand a context that, that They can't necessarily get to, but it's so hard when your people aren't saying the words that would make it clear. So, how do you figure out, like, what's your barometer of, like, this is something, this is okay and this isn't okay? Like, what, where, where can you be lyrical and say Sisyphus in a ski suit? And where is it overstepping the lines and you're, you're over romanticizing or over overdoing it? I don't know.
0: Yeah, I mean, I definitely think. The challenge comes when you're doing internal descriptions of the person. I mean, that, because, and, um, I mean, I, I feel like I learned that, I learned that from a lot of people, but definitely doing This American Life stories, I feel like, I mean, that's a very poetic show. It's a very lyrical show. But um, I, was, I would come up with some line, line I was like, oh, this is so good, it's so written, so well. They were like, how do you know that that is true? And then we'd cut it. Even though it's such a good line, um, so I do think that the basic thing is that is true. I mean, that's a true fact. And what I was, the the example of the Ethiopia story, the Ethiopian woman. I mean, there's a lot in there that's, you know, I, I again, I'm I'm coloring in. Like I say, she wanted to um, attain, you know, like she came there to get an education, and then the closest she got. To the school was dropping, she was 11, just dropping off this 12-year-old and the 8-year-old as their nanny, right? So I feel like those two facts speak to me. They are feeling emotional to me. They, they, I feel them. Um, and they're both true. And I, once she said to me that she wanted to get her education, I said, well, did you ever walk into the school? How close did you get? And she said, well, I was dropping them. So I, I knew, I mean, in my mind, I was like I, asking a lot of details sort of helped me write that later because I'd asked her a bunch of questions composed solely of true things. Um, yeah.
3: Cool. Thanks. It's still terrifying because I want to do it,
0: but... I mean, I think the terror that some people feel, and I don't know if it's your terror, your personal terror, but I think it, a, a number of, people have said to me sometimes that they don't feel the person would say that. So how should, how can they say it? Because the person wouldn't say that. Um, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't have that problem, but cause I, I basically just think that it's not, I mean, I have a duty to the audience just as much as to the person. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, Hopefully it's not romanticized, but I'm, I'm trying to make it big. I'm trying to make it mean something to you. So, yeah, I'm totally going to write things that you would not say, uh, but are true facts. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, when you don't want to do it, just remember who's listening as opposed to who you interviewed, possibly. Yeah.
4: Hey. Um, so... I have like a half thought out question, but hopefully it comes across um, I'm thinking about the sort of like the roadblocks or bumps in the roads that you might have in doing these international stories and i'm wondering and I'm wondering which percentage of that is like because you, you cited one of the things was that like people were distrustful of journalists in one place, and they you know they had this sort of uh yeah, just this kind of distrust of of journalists, and I'm wondering like what percentage of of the roadblocks you encounter are like because you're a journalist, and what percentage of it is like if you're like in some like in like af- some African countries, like how your your race plays into that. Like, how does your your whiteness play play into doing these stories?
0: Yeah, I'm I'm really glad you asked me that because um, so my experience of being a white journalist covering Africa was. Uh, you know, it was to me. It was really, it was interesting. It was mixed. Um, the word "mzungu," which is the word for uh, foreigner, I mean, sorry, it's the word for white person in in Africa. You hear it all the time, "mzungu, mzungu." It actually means foreigner, and African Americans get called "mzungu" just as much as white Americans. It's basically our Americanness is um, is a thing, um, and I think. So I do think that differences which, you know, would be much more important in America become, you you just, you just become one more American. However, I definitely think there should be more, I mean, more African American reporters covering Africa because, you know, even like the younger generation, uh, this means more too. I mean, someone said to me, uh, a 19 year old Kenyan has more in common with a 19 year old American than he does with a 42 year old Kenyan. I don't know if that's true, but it's an interesting concept. And there's a youth, a sort of a culture of youth, which is, I mean, Africa's an extremely young continent. Um, and when you come as another you know, white reporter, I think you do sort of fulfill, you just like become part of a story that people are already have in their head, that, oh, here comes the white reporter. So I'm saying both things. One thing I'm saying is that actually, I, I mean, African Americans get treated as mzungu, it, you're just American, you're seen as wealthy. In fact, I met uh, people who were very upset about that. You know, in Nigeria especially, they were Nigerian-American. They thought they were going to just be related to because, oh, you're my fellow, but they were like, oh, you're just another American, uh, of course. So I think we exaggerate what these uh, details are going to mean. And race, I mean, as you know, I mean, race is totally different in, in Africa. I mean, uh, you know, the concept, uh, the, the American concept of race is extremely different uh, in the african context but i also believe that the fact is that you know when you change the script and you, you show a different face you show a different format and you just you scramble things um, that's that's going to be good because you're going to get different stories you you are going to ch- change how people see you so yeah, important I, thing
4: yeah i, I guess Uh, as you said that I think my question got a little bit more clear is do you do you feel like you get more access because you're white or do you feel like people block you out because you're white
0: in Africa specifically yeah I can't answer it I don't know I'm trapped in my own skin okay (laughs) all right well thanks anyway (laughs) appreciate
1: it
3: um so I feel like a lot of us have had the experience of being in the middle of reporting a story and kind of feeling like things are out of focus. Like, actually, I don't know what the story is about. Like, you're describing with the Brazil story, kind of feeling like, oh, maybe my fundamental orientation to this story is just, like, slightly askew somehow. Do you have any kind of good roadmaps for, like, heat maps for figuring out that are kind of universal? Like, you were, you were talking about, like, the buttons and how upset he was about the buttons. Is there something in, like, what somebody's specific about or what gets them emotionally heated that can help you reorient? Or what are the things you're paying attention to that are useful in kind of helping you find your way back to the center of the story that matters to to somebody?
0: Yeah, in a culture I mean, that you don't understand. I know it's and it happens at every story, and you think, well, I, I, I'm experienced now. This is not supposed to keep happening, but it just keeps. Yeah, every story. I mean, any story that's any good, I think, should should throw you into confusion at some point. Um, so, yeah, strategies. I mean, one like thing while I, you're
3: interviewing, especially, and while you're what? While you're interviewing, especially. Yeah, while you're yeah. interviewing.
0: I mean, oh, during the interview itself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm I I'm trying to interview somebody, but I'm also writing the story in my head. You know, I think we well, many of us do that. Um, one thing that I do after interviews is uh, is and, and learn this from other people, but is writing down the five the five best moments of the interview. Um, I just find that to be very useful, because then you, you you realize right there that, oh my God, when they said this, that was, um, that was so beautiful, and it wasn't part of your script, you weren't, weren't expecting it, but then it's on your list of five things, it's sort of enshrined, and then you, you later can take the five things from everybody and you say, well, here's the five things things, and, and you draw a line through it. Um, yeah, um, yeah, during interviews, I mean, I think also it's really good to do an interview with another person. Um, I, I never did that as an international correspondent, um, but as in the podcasts, we have done more interviews with other person, and I think that it just takes that moment. It, 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 if you can do that, it allows you to break for a moment, collect your thoughts, or see how they're seeing it. So it, it, collabor- podcasts are very collaborative, and it, it's useful to do it collaboratively.
2: Um, my sense is that when you are pitching a story domestically about a domestic issue, it's an asset to find a story that doesn't heed to the uh, established narrative about something. But when you are pitching an international story, it's harder to do that because it's already foreign. So if it's something that's foreign and also doesn't cleave to the established narrative, maybe editors won't be interested. Tell me if I'm wrong. but. Uh, I'm curious if that's true, and also whether you have any tips for pitching these types of stories that sort of throw a, throw a fork in the wheel when it comes to an international story.
0: I mean, definitely, and this was more print reporters would complain about this, I, because they would say, oh, yeah, I have to always spend 500 words describing the conflict, and it's an 800-word story, and so there was that feeling that they always had to ground it in the conflict. I do think, I think the radio is actually a wonderful sort of medium, obviously. But because you can you can say, oh, I, I met this woman. I met this amazing person. And uh, she's got this story, this thing that happened. And anyway, it kind of, it it does, it speaks to sort of this larger issue for um, uh, women in uh, this, or, I mean, so again, I think, we, we don't just use anecdotes. We often need a person to take us through an entire story. So a compelling character can be a good pitch. Now, I, I understand it's very hard to find the compelling character if you're not in that place, and if you're pitching to go to a place. Um, when I was... My first trip to Afghanistan, uh, I got a, a Pew grant to go there, but I'd never been there before. And so the, what I did was, I was like, okay, what's was talking about the war, so what could I talk about that wouldn't be the war, but would be, so I was reporting in a rural station at that time, I was in North Country Public Radio, and I was like, oh, uh, I'm going to rep- I'm gonna say that I'm reporting on rural Afghans, you know, and uh, had this idea, but then, so I called up Afghanistan, and they didn't even know how to do that, I just would call up sort of Uh, places, and I said, you, do you know any farmers? Now, in retrospect, that's a ridiculous way of approaching it, but I just, I felt like, oh, and then I finally found out there was a story of somebody in Jalaba, so then I said, okay, here's this, and I I kind of created this in my own head, but it was based on a person that I was planning to go meet, so I I do think there's a difference in pitching a topic or pitching an angle versus pitching a person. If you can just find that person and then of course you get there and that person doesn't exist and you change the story but um uh, it's useful to base it on that person
6: hi sorry my name is sonia paul um i have a question that's twofold and somewhat related um which is the concept of relatability when pitching international stories because i've encountered this before where editors have told me oh that's like breaking news or really important in the country where you are, but it's just not relatable for American audiences or there's not a character who's relatable enough. Um, So that's the first question. Yeah. So do you wanna answer that first and then?
0: So what's the question? The question is can I I change others?
6: Well I think if you could talk a little bit more about like strategies for um, reporters who are trying to find characters who are relatable, but also not really fall into that trap because Isn't the point of being like an international correspondent to challenge our worldviews about what we think we know about the world and maybe if someone's not relatable, that's a good thing?
0: Yes, I definitely agree with that. I will say that as a freelancer in countries, I was, my stance was very different than as a correspondent. As a freelancer, I was, you know, just looking for stories that would be good, that would be stories, you know, that would just be interesting that I could sell on the fact that they were good stories. And even if they were short. I mean, uh, Afghan farmer wants to, you know, has this nursery program. I mean, it could be even kind of a technical thing, but then just something funny about the trees and then, or not so funny, because the ward, like. Anyway, I'm just trying to think of stories that I pitched as a freelancer that were sort of newsy, but they weren't that newsy. I, I never did an election story when I was a freelancer. I could never get an election. Okay, this is the last question. I could never get an election story because that wasn't my thing. I mean, uh, I didn't try. And, um, yeah, but as a correspondent, suddenly... I mean, yeah, as a correspondent, it wasn't that I covered elections, but I had to know about them all. And suddenly, so it was a very different stance of uh, being sort of authoritative in the region. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I, I changed... I changed an approach, so, so in terms of relatability, maybe it's maybe going for the big topic in that country, maybe the, maybe the news people feel that, okay, that's, that's where the correspondence should be, and maybe the freelancer can grab another piece of that. Thanks, everybody.) Thank